for Ta is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SubChina, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. We are back this week with Sarah Keenly-Side, CEO and founder of Bespoke Travel. Our conversation really takes the full range from storytelling about cricket masters and the hutongs to sharing about her grapple with PTSD during her first few years in Beijing. She also provides some insightful and tangible advice about bringing on new employees to the team and consciously structuring your company to let go. Let's give this episode a listen. Hi, Sarah. It's really exciting to have you on Ta for Ta today. Just wanted to introduce you to our listeners. Sarah is the CEO and founder of Bespoke. It is a travel company and tour company in China. And right now she's in Beijing. And I think that you would probably do a much better job of introducing yourself than I can. So I was hoping that you could tell listeners a little bit more about the path to where you are today and how you got to doing what you're doing now. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. It's my first podcast. Um, I arrived in Beijing in 2005. I was a journalist before I came here. And for the first few years that I came here, that's what I'd always wanted to do, actually, as a child. Ever since I was about eight years old, I thought I was going to be a journalist. I was a journalist and I, I thought that that would be my job forever and ever. But in around 2009, pretty much just after the Beijing Olympics, I decided to to make a switch to the to the travel industry so I sort of transitioned out I still very occasionally write the odd feature article if it's a topic that interests me and I do miss it but uh, in general my path to entrepreneurship has um was an unexpected one. So can you tell me a little bit more what it was like to move to Beijing pre-Olympics? I think that that city has seen such incredible change with the infrastructure and the tourism that was brought in for the Olympics. What was it like being there before? Yeah, it was it was, it was crazy, really. Thinking about it, it was crazy. I mean, at the time, it, it, it was, you know, the norm, but it just, looking back on it, it's, it's quite unbelievable to think what a construction site it was, basically. I think that's the, the best way to describe it. The entire city was just one big building site. So every street corner had a crane a huge crane big holes in the ground stuff was just being destroyed and if it hadn't already been chied there was a sign on it to to um, indicate that it was about to be so it was quite a funny place I mean I remember when what what is now Taiku Lee the Swire development formerly mm. known as the village was all hutongs I, I remember walking through them when they were when they were hutongs and, and watching them be destroyed so it's it's like physically speaking there's been a huge amount of change um, yeah th- I mean 30 more than 13 years it's it's kind of hard to put into words how quickly China has changed. 13 years sounds like a long time, but I think the pace has just been relentless. So I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. I'm assuming that you'd started your career in journalism in London. And what was it, this big break opportunity to go to Beijing? Or were you fascinated by the type of opportunities in journalism in Beijing at the time? What made you decide to take the leap to move to a different geography, even though it was the same career 
line path of what you were doing yeah no sadly uh I wasn't that brave unfortunately <laughs> I, I think I came I sort of whether or not I well I, I think I almost fled really so I had been working in London and just before I came there was um, unfortunately I was involved in quite a traumatic event back in London the the uh, bombings in 2005 in London um, which was the first time that London had been uh, attacked really I think since 9-11, the whole city was in shock. The whole thing was quite stressful. And about a month after that happened, uh, my boyfriend at the time, who also worked at the at the newspaper I was at, said, look, I've just been offered a job to set up Time Out magazine in China. Do you want to join me? And uh, <laughs> at that point, I just sort of said, uh, yeah, OK. Um, so it wasn't, I can't say that it was a particularly conscious decision. I think it was that, you know, I was sort of London scared me at that point the job that I had fallen in love with had become quite a stressful one and you know I didn't want to lose uh, this person I was in love with so I just said yes there was no strategy behind it whatsoever so you know a couple of months later I found myself sitting in Beijing with no job uh, no friends no language ability no nothing really and 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 not really much of a passion for China I had been um, earlier that year on a holiday and I'd loved it I'd loved it as a vacation destination mm. it was fascinating and I'd seen so much stuff that was just completely the opposite to everything you knew growing up and growing up in Europe and it was it was a real eye-opener but did I want to live here no <laughs> is the short answer and so were you helping set up Time Out China when you first got there to all intents and purposes yes so what happened was um, it was him that had been given the editorship and uh, I tagged along um, but it was a pretty small team at the time and I think we realized fairly quickly that there weren't many sort of skilled journalists or experienced journalists or sub-editors and so after a few months I think about six months or so after I'd got to know the city a little bit then I was able to help out and start to 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 write some of the articles rather than just sub-edit and things like that so um yeah it must have been a really scrappy startup situation where you're just getting your feet in the ground and literally hitting the pavement probably to get articles but I think now it Many foreigners in China often use timeout, not just in Beijing, but also in Shanghai and in Hong Kong to get the news about what's what's happening, what to do, what to see in China. So I think, you know, there's been incredible growth over the years of timeout. And it's crazy to know that you were there in those early days. Yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely scrappy because we were a pretty small team working pretty ridiculous hours sort of 18 hour days what I was used to actually back in London but but um rather than weekly because I was working for the Sunday Times in London this was a monthly kind of deadline where we were working silly hours um and we were actually up in the 798 art Mm. art district so the the lady that had bought the franchise for time out her home and kind of network were up in 798 so we were also really lucky to be in this big former workers gymnasium in 798 this big you know, it was a very cool space, but it wasn't very practical. It was very cold in the winter and we'd have these like, uh, you know, the, the Beijing weasels running under our feet <laughs> <laughs> two in the morning. And like, it, yeah, and we, we would literally go home with the factory workers. There were still factory workers there then. So so it was amazing. And it, yeah, I, it was a in a way it was it, I was really lucky because that was the perfect introduction to China because I had to get out and sort of put myself out there and go and learn the city, try and orient myself, you know, and um, 
meet people, meet some really interesting people who were shaping the dining scene, who were shaping the art scene, who, uh, you know, this kind of thing. So, yeah, and there was, you know, there was no DD, none of that stuff. None of that stuff was easy. Like, I was definitely muddling through with my terrible Chinese, taxi drivers not understanding me and using traditional maps, like literally a big old paper map, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, That's unfathomable to think that was, you know, only 13 years (laughs) of incredible growth that's been experienced. Do you remember any of those first articles that you wrote? and the process that you went through yeah it was terrible actually yeah (laughs) Yeah. Uh, when I look back on them they were really verbose and terribly written but um one of the ones that um uh somebody here reminds me of occasionally is um Dominic Johnson Hill who runs plaster t-shirts here who was a an expat who started a business early on sort of you know in the early days of Nanlo Guxiang so that street that some listeners might know used to be a sleepy hutong with a backpacking hostel on it and a small cafe called Shaoxin's Cafe. And that was kind of it. And then Dominic came along and opened this t-shirt shop and I wrote the first review of his shop and he still reminds me of it occasionally. And obviously that, you know, his, his, his little shop was the catalyst for that whole street to then become this creative street. Uh, where lots of people were running independent boutiques and cafes and it was very dynamic and you know even that street I've sort of seen reach a peak of creativity and then those those shops and those entrepreneurs and those small business people were were forced out because the rents became so high and now our clients refer to refer to it as a snack street which just blows my mind because it's just I don't think of Nanlongushan as a snack street at all but I think that's what it's become. So it's funny. Yeah, it's the changes are just a crazy arc of it. So what I'm trying to wrap my mind around is that, you know, you were, again, hitting the pavement, you were writing these articles, you were getting time off, off the ground, somewhat uh, accidentally, somewhat serendipitously. When did you start to experience this change of, hmm, Maybe I I don't want to be a journalist and maybe there's something else that I want to be doing. I think there was a couple of things. It was having been a news journalist and always um, really loved that. That was what I always wanted to do. I was an investigative journalist. Um, The work was really challenging, but really fun in London. And then coming... um, to China and running time out, obviously that's a totally different thing. You know, writing restaurant reviews is totally different than trying to uncover electoral mm-hmm. fraud, right? <laughs> like they're just two very different disciplines. And the truth is it's, it's that first type of journalism that I was really passionate about. And I think not, not doing that for a while allowed me to sort of see, well, you know, you did that, you enjoyed it. It was very stressful, but you know, you enjoyed it now, maybe you can move into something else because there's only so far you can, you know, there's only so much, there's only so many restaurant reviews you can write, you know, it's not, it, it becomes less challenging, personally speaking. So I think there was an element of that. And also, I think during the Olympics was the the turning point in terms of seeing people struggling in a city that I'd struggled with so badly a few years before. And I just had complete, you know, sympathy for, for them. And also because uh, of my position at Time Out, you then become known as someone who knows the city really well and so there were there were people coming to me from all angles sort of asking for you know could you recommend a hotel could you recommend a restaurant could you recommend a tour guide can you can you even speak to my taxi driver for me and these were people I didn't Mm. even know in some cases so there was a definite sort of need Uh, there were a lot of people flooding the city at that time who needed help that they weren't getting from other quarters and 
yeah and I I knew that a lot of them were having were muddling through and having a hard time when that wasn't really necessary because I knew that with the right information and the right help and a friendly person to talk to you could actually have an incredible time in China so I think I saw a sort of gap between guidebooks which were out of date as soon as they were published a year before the Olympics and package tours which people don't want anymore you know people want customization people want to do things a little bit more independently there was nothing really in the middle and I felt that there was space for a company that sat between those two and looking around I didn't think anyone else was doing it and I just knew that I would be angry with myself if somebody else came up with this idea before I did and so I think the two came together it was like okay I've left that that journalism career behind, even though it was fairly short-lived and intense, I'm ready to do something else. And, um, and, and, and this will be a new challenge for me. So yeah, I, th- I think that's how it happened. Actually, really. before this interview, I looked up Bespoke's definition and it's made for a particular customer, user, or making or selling bespoke goods, especially clothing. I think it's interesting that you bring up this point of customization. What did customization in the words of travel and tourism and seeing things, how how did you picture that? How did you imagine that in those early days? Um, I think it was more to do with people know what they want. So they might have done a certain amount of research before they come, but perhaps just Googling around doesn't really give particularly useful results. I think there's the type of traveler, especially that is independently minded. And actually, I think British travelers, I think the longer I've done this job, the more I notice the difference between different nationalities, actually. And for sure, British travelers were coming from the same place that I was, which is, I don't need a tour guide. You know, I can use a guidebook and I can see these places by myself and I can can do it by myself. Yeah, yeah. And, um, And what you saw time and time again was like, yeah, you did, but you know, you got scammed, you know, or, um, you, you wasted loads of time going to the wrong gate of the forbidden city or the wrong part of the great wall or a terrible restaurant or, you know, so there was lots of little things like that. And, And of course, all those little components together are what make a great trip. And if people, um, were not able to find the right hotel, the right tour guide, the right restaurant, the right bar, the right souvenir shop for them, then you don't really have a good experience of that place. And and more than that, I think people weren't really engaging. People don't always get to see the real China and it's such a misunderstood country. So for us, being able to tailor something for them was about asking them, you know, switching the traditional travel model, which is hey, we've created this package. Here's what we do. Pick one. And we switched that around and we just started with, look, we've created these services for you, but we want to hear from you first. What do you want? And then we'll match our services to your needs. And so it was just a different type of, we were just coming at it from a different angle, which seemed like a no brainer to me, but it's, it's something that's still quite new in the, in the industry. Yeah. I think there's something that you hit on there, at least with Western travelers, is that there's a sense that if you have a guide or you're on a tour is that you lose the sense of inauthenticity of the experience of not getting to truly see a city or country in its purest form because you're being ushered from place to place to pre-staged experiences and that there's a sense of it's very hard to really get the the pureness and the wonderfulness of a country like China with the offerings that are sometimes available um, so I, th- I think that you're definitely hitting yeah. on something that that is really important. 
Yeah, I mean, for for, for me, it was, I, you know, I started off, I'm, the, the truth is that Bespoke started as um, a sort of almost like a, we originally had a, a local cell phone and then a totally customized little pocket guide for people. And that was the original idea to give people the independence to see it by themselves. But after the sort of hundredth person asked me if I had a good tour guide, I realized that there was demand for that, but it had to be a good tour guide because I think people's, you know, obviously the reputation of a tour is, you know, someone waving a flag with a megaphone, ushering people on and off the bus, you know, telling you when you're allowed to go to the bathroom. But the the when I started uh, looking for t- local tour guides and realizing how bad most of them were, um, a lot of them were reading from a, you know, sort of a mental script and they were doing this, they'd done the same thing day in, day out for years and there was no passion there. They weren't necessarily sharing much of themselves. I realized that there was a ton of bad tour guides and what people were looking for was a really good one and and so that was the challenge for us that was the first thing that we put all of our effort into was finding tour guides who were like friends you know who were just amazing totally bilingual extremely like knowledgeable well-researched well-read eloquent that you were able to have an open and honest conversation with about anything from you know Chinese history to politics to the one child policy whatever it was you know they were the they were what would make a trip really valuable and so much more valuable than a guidebook written by an expat like by, like me would mm-hmm. ever be you know that's that's ironically that's that that's the the version that people are getting when they read a guidebook compared to actually engaging with a local but of course it has to be a real person with real opinions and who's also whose English is also at a level or Spanish or whatever who is at a level where they can convey what they really feel because that's also part of it right it's very hard to have proper discussions with people if if you're not able to speak their language so yeah that was that was the first big thing we put our energy into and that was what changed my view of of touring in general and then I got behind it in a big way because I could see how how much of a difference it made to people's trips. I always like to ask this question for one that have started something entrepreneurially is about what it was like hiring some of your first employees or maybe even your first tour guides training them did you learn anything about yourself professionally or about how to grow a business through some of those first hirings those first interactions yeah definitely I learned that I sucked as a manager first of all (laughs) so the first person I hired was really just an assistant who you know I didn't have an office and this poor girl would come to my house and just sit across the dining room table for me and just you know do a lot of the stuff that I couldn't do because my my written Chinese wasn't good enough spoken Chinese wasn't good enough um at first and then I realized that that was just very claustrophobic and that I had no idea how to manage people unsurprisingly she left <laughs> definitely don't blame her and then and so I sort of started a- again and I was lucky enough to find my first sort of full-time employee who was just an incredible person she was very young actually but she was a she really helped bring my business on and then I started to hire more people but I got it wrong so many times and I realized that you know it was only I only had myself to blame because I was hiring the wrong person I think in the early days my only criteria were well you have to be bilingual which is obviously not really enough uh, when you're trying to run a company and I think one of the things that seemed kind of elusive at first when I had three other people working with me the thing that I struggled with was this idea of company culture I just kept hearing from everybody and everything I read you know you need to have a strong company culture and it just seemed like this 
slightly yeah elusive concept to me I just didn't understand how you create a company culture I didn't know what that meant and it was only after really reading a lot more and trying to understand uh what 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 you need to do within a company to create a culture um that things started to get better and also I I read a lot um about hiring best hiring practices and things like that so it was all self-taught but there's so many amazing resources out there now that I I think it's you know that yeah that helped me a lot but I had to do a lot of reading and a lot of trial and error and make a lot of mistakes before I think I I got it right um and it's still one of the hardest things I think with the tour guides yeah we just it was about leveraging you know finding a handful of really great ones and then leveraging them to get more so we created a tour guide club and academy and mm. we we gave our tour guides points um every time they got great feedback from the clients we we interviewed them obviously at length before we let them work for us and then when they're out in the field if they told us you know oh such and such place is closed this week we'd be like great thank you because they're out in the field we're not we gave them points for that and then every year we'd have a big annual dinner and the winner the person the tour guide with the most points would win an ipad And that was a great way to get those people on board and be part of the team, even though they were only freelancers, and then ask them to help us to find more tour guides. And because they were sort of the originals, the the first tier, if you like, we were able to say to them, you know, if you help us find others, we will always come to you first. But we, you know, we're growing and we need more good tour guides that are at the same level as you. And of course, they knew people. We just had to incentivize them to share those contacts, you know. <laughs> yeah, those are some really tangible examples of the train the trainer models and gamification with your employees. So it definitely right. makes sense that that ended up working out so well. I think, you know, we talk a little bit about the employee side of this, but also from the the visitor, the traveler, maybe you call them clients. Have you seen changes in the type of clients, the type of visitors that come to visit China? And adding another layer to that, how do you think those challenges or, or rewards of visiting China have changed over the years that you've been running Bespoke? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think I've seen a big difference in the types of people that we've worked with because I think Mm. the type of clients that come to us because of the branding on our website and I guess the referrals that we get, it's, it's always people who are definitely keen to get off the beaten path and uh, really engage with the real China. You know, they want to eat Chinese food and they want to get into the hutongs and they want to meet real people. And that's slightly different than the like super, super luxury or package tourists who kind of just want to tick off the bucket list sites. And so those, I think those people have always been our clients and we've been lucky that we've only seemed to have attracted those type of people. And we, we really love actually working with all of the people that come to us. And I think we're really lucky in that. And I think it's quite unusual. But I think one thing that we have seen change over time is China's reputation. And that definitely affects the numbers of people that come in. And, you know, from like we partner with some travel agents in the US. And certainly, if China's reputation is not good in the US, then the numbers just drop off and they'll tell us, look, people just don't want to go to China right now. They're going to Japan instead or to Vietnam or they just want to go down to Hong Kong for a couple of days. And so we've seen the attitude to China change a lot and year on year it's different. And that's been the biggest, I think that's what's had the biggest impact um, over all those kind of clients that want to engage with the country and are very intellectually curious have, have always been coming. That's really interesting to just see how it's changed over time. And then also in the sense of evolution, 
how do you pick the locations? How do you curate for a client? I know it's a little bit different depending on the needs, the wants, the interests of, of a visitor, but why do you pick the places that you pick? Yeah, I, I think obviously the big, especially in Beijing, so we also obviously operate in Shanghai, Xi'an, Chengdu, um, and those those big centers. The places that we choose will always um, be what's best for the client. So one of the things that we don't do is sort of partner with certain hotels or take commissions from restaurants. Uh, that's probably a hangover from my timeout days to be uh, independent so that we are always recommending what's best for the client. But yeah, the big hitter sites like Great Wall, Forbidden City, they're always going to be the most popular. So therefore... It's our responsibility to make sure that we're giving those sites a twist and that we're showing you them with a a really amazing guide who's going to take you a little bit off the beaten path or a historian or something similar. And then I think one thing that has changed in terms of the clients, like I said before, where people's attitude to China changes a lot. What we've seen a lot recently is um, corporates from big tech companies, you know, sending people every other week, uh, small groups from headquarters. And their main objective is to see China's, you know, lifestyle tech in action, really, because, Mm. you know, theoretically they know what goes on but when they're actually here and we take them to like a wet market and they see a 70 year old lady buying um, her cabbage with WeChat and they're kind of blown away so it's fun to be able to now show people that side of China and that's been that's been great we've really enjoyed doing that and I think that's a new sort of segment of people that's emerged in just in the last 18 months I would say. Yeah, it almost it it feels like there's almost this rush from the outside, especially from certain industries to everyone's like, we must understand China, we must understand China. And do you do you have a take on that and and how you do that in the right way for people that haven't had any exposure to the country, its its customs, its people, its climate? Yeah, I mean, that's just one of the things that I I think that's one of the most rewarding parts about what we do is that we all know how complex China is and that it's not as black and white as it's often presented to be overseas uh, in the West. And so, you know, it's just great to be able to show people another side of it and give them a different point of view. Um, That's why it's really important to us to hook them up with local guides um, who they can have discussions with. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just one of those, I mean, culturally as well, people people have a lot of assumptions about what Chinese culture is. And then, you know, even even little things like Tai Chi and traditional Chinese medicine. For me, before I came to China, and, and still to a certain extent, Chinese medicine equals, you know, animal cruelty, right? <laughs> Creating the, causing the extinction of a lot of animals. That's one of those areas that, that's what we're sort of taught. That's the only thing we hear about TCM if you read the newspapers. Whereas actually then when you come here and you, you know uh, do a session with a tai chi master in the park in the morning or you talk to a a tcm doctor you realize there's so much more to it than that and that's that's not the point at all actually and that there is you know a lot of things that are really useful to to people in the west that they just wouldn't have considered it's just eye-opening i think that's the main thing is is just i i want people to be as surprised as i was when i first came about chinese culture and and how interesting it can be and how much value it has because it's just oversimplified at home. So 
our job is really to tease out the intricacies and introduce our clients to real people for real conversations. Yeah. And actually, even beyond the people, you talked a little bit about technology. Is there anything that you're following in terms of trends or new new companies or new ideas around technology that's shaping experiences in China, either related to hospitality or food and beverage or travel? Because I feel like that's also a lot of the part of the difference in experiences in China. You you go to a mall or you interact with things in a different way than you might actually in the States or the UK or wherever a tourist is coming from. I'm just wondering if there's anything that you've been following that provides different experiences in China. Yeah, I think there's a few things, just small uh, lifestyle things that we can show people when they come. One of the issues that we've had is that now everything is on WeChat, everything is digital payments, that is now becoming prohibitive for our clients. So they can't, a lot of places don't take cash and they're not taking credit cards. It's all, you know, WeChat Pay or Alipay and all of a sudden they're out in the cold again. Um, They can't call a DD, they can't use a mobike. Sometimes they can download those apps before they come, but then they have issues. And so that's become a bit of a sticking point. And therefore, again, it does help to have a guide with you that can show you it from their own phone, order you a luck in coffee, and then you know you have it delivered to the hotel before you start your tour, or you go to Herma supermarket and you see how that works, and you order some groceries and see if you can beat them back to your hotel. Um, <laughs> even like the Heidi Lau, the AI restaurant that's just opened um, near Shamal Tianjia, you know that's like that's amazing. It's really interesting for people to see what. I think what the future of their country will be. Uh, do you know what I mean? It's just right. that, that China is so far ahead. It's like, you know, this stuff will all happen in the West, but it's just a little bit behind and it doesn't have the uptake. There's not the adoption rate, the speed of adoption that, that you have in China. And that's what's so remarkable about China. And that's what I, also astonishes me because I've been here so long and I've seen how it used to be. It's just the speed of how quickly people have adopted all these different lifestyle um elements and the way that you know the way Chinese people will book their travel totally different than the way people in the West will Can and we so there's a lot for a us to learn more? tell me a little bit more about mm. that well it's definitely it, to be honest it's not my area of expertise because um, we're still not that's you know obviously almost all of our clients are coming from overseas into China mm-hmm. um, but I think just uh, being able to pay very small amounts of money over WeChat for what is presented as a customized itinerary for a, for a country that you haven't been to before you know it's just so easy it's just making the idea of travel less daunting for young people in mm. china it's pretty cheap you can you can get to these other countries really easily now and there's just so it's just a really dynamic environment and so i think you know my company can learn a lot from the chinese travel companies it's just not something that i've ne- necessarily given we haven't looked too much into at the moment, but yeah. really interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Because there's a whole different way of doing things that you wouldn't have even thought of. And and that's across every sector, actually. Right. And also for some listeners that are not as familiar, could you just quickly explain what Heidi Lau is doing right now with AI? 
Sure, yeah. So Heidi Lau is the the hot pot restaurant um, that's pretty famous here. It's always been well known for its great service. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have a new branch near the place, near the CBD, the Central Business District. And the entire, there's some robots uh, running around bringing you uh, your vegetables, which is a little bit gimmicky. There's still lots of staff on the floor. But behind the scenes, in the kitchens, the whole kitchen is powered by AI robots. And so once you put your order in, you've got these big robot arms that are picking out your you know cabbage or (laughs) your mushrooms that you've ordered and putting them on the plate for the little robot to bring to your table so there's there's a little bit of you know it's a little bit gimmicky on the on the front end but behind the scenes it's actually where it's pretty impressive and it's just super efficient and even when you arrive you sit in a waiting area that's like a little cinema and you can log in to the app and compete with all the other people waiting for their table uh, in a computer game that's on this huge screen. So, you know, it's just fun. They're just having a lot of fun with it. And I think it's just really surprising for anyone that's come from the West. Yeah. And to build off that, just where things are surprising coming from the West, do you think there are different impressions of what customer service means in different cultures. So in a sense that I even think about customer service in China and that it's so much more tech integrated, it's so much more focused on different types of experiences and really bringing you from offline to online and having that seamless mobile integration. It's a very different sense maybe of customer service somewhere else. But to not take that answer completely away from you, I'm curious if you had had any thoughts on that dynamic yeah I think well something again for me having been here from for a while when we started looking for car companies to work with for example getting the drivers to wear a suit and a tie and have a clean car was like pulling teeth you know and having wi-fi in the car and we always wanted to add these things that added to the the customer experience, made it more comfortable, make sure you have phone chargers. We we wanted Wi-Fi in all of our cars. This kind of stuff was impossible when I first started. And we would do random spot checks. And, and luckily, we found a car company um, whose management totally uh, appreciated what we were trying to do. And they could see that that was helping them lift their game as well. You know, not smoking near the car, all that kind of stuff. It's all... It's all stuff that now Didi has mastered on a massive scale. But just, you know, eight years ago, that mm. was that would have seemed impossible. And so not, yeah, that, that integration of, um, you know, the customer just not even having to, to interact with the driver. You know, they're not, they don't, you know, if you go for a DD premiere, for example, you don't have to talk to the driver. They'll just show up, you know, and they'll open the door for you. And it's the same kind of level that, that we were striving for, but that was so difficult. Now they've, they've managed to replicate that on a massive scale. And so it's been interesting again, just to see how the service industry has been improved and then been able to multiply and, and be replicated due to the technology. You know, that was something that I just, I I would never have seen coming and it's made a huge difference. It really has. It's made, made stuff a lot easier. And so then how did you end up initiating this collaboration with Penguin Books? Uh, this has, I think, been one of your more recent developments with the company. Yeah, so we um, we run a monthly walking tour, uh, very off the beaten track. It's in a part of Beijing that no one ever really goes to. Where is uh, that? With Penguin Books. Uh, so that's near the Beijing railway station, near the Dongbianmen uh, watchtower and the old city wall relic park. Um, I don't know if I've been so, there. So yeah, no, it's really... <laughs> 
Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a totally, it's a, it's a place that most people wouldn't go. But Paul French, a British author, uh, used to live in Shanghai and I've known him for a long time. He moved back to London and was still being asked if he could do this walking tour. And I think he was at the end of his tether and said, Sarah, would Bespoke want to do this for me or, or do the official walking tour because I'm kind of tired of turning people away. So uh, I said, yes, of course. And I knew uh, a historian that we've worked with for a long time here, a Danish guy who is really um, a historian in the truest sense of the word. He does a lot of research. And I asked him if he would like to do it. And he said, yes. And then went and did a ton of his own research and uncovered lots of Chinese police reports about the case. Uh, It's a murder mystery. It's a true crime story about a young woman who was murdered in 1937 in Beijing and her body was found at the foot of that watchtower I mentioned before and so what's been lucky for us because this doesn't happen very often is that all of the places mentioned in the book still exist and so it was a great narrative for us to be able to to work with and take people off the beaten track and through the hutongs and through old Beijing, through the old legation quarter and try to bring 1930s Peking back to life. Because again, it's just a period in, in Beijing's history that really doesn't get covered very much. I think we all know sort of the, the communist period and we know the imperial period, but that sort of weird few years in between don't get talked about very much. And so, yeah, it's it's been great. And um Paul French is actually coming to, occasionally he comes back to Beijing. So he is actually going to join us for three of these walking tours in, at the end of March and beginning of April. That is such a unique story. And I really enjoy your storytelling. I was wondering, have you uncovered <laughs> any other really ridiculously unique stories from the the tours and the work that you do that you wouldn't mind sharing? Specific stories, gosh, I don't know. There's so many, I almost lose track. But I think it's like, for sure, our tour guides have told me things that have blown my mind a little bit. But we've, and we always try to find different angles for things rather than just doing the usual. Um, One of our tour guides uh, or one of the experiences that we love and that is so popular because it's kind of bonkers is um, the Hutong tour that we do because we take people to meet a local cricket trainer like the insects and this guy called Mr. Liu has been breeding and training crickets for his whole life and it's mad he's absolutely mad. you know these little crickets have a marriage bed and weighing scales and he you know he puts so much effort into the food that he feeds them and things like this because you know these cr- cricket fighting is an ancient pastime it's very popular in it Beijing. Is. Um, yeah, yeah, really? yeah. It's a, it's a thing. It's a thing with old, old men in Beijing. There's even a big cricket fighting competition every year uh, that takes place somewhere. And he's one of the, you know, preeminent cricket trainers. Uh, so, <laughs> so to take to take people to his house and hear his stories um, a, a, about why he does this and and how he does this. Um, he's got this wonderful courtyard home with a menagerie of animals. I mean, talking minor birds, a dog, you know, cat, turtle lizards uh the whole the the whole thing um it's just really it's just really fun and it's a really unusual experience that again it's like is that even a thing people fight crickets so yeah I think that's probably a good example of another zany kind of personal story that people don't even consider uh, is a thing before they come that's very interesting and what do you think is next for bespoke 
what do you have your eyes set on? Um, so we are trying to uh, expand to Japan. So um, we know that there's huge demand for tours in Japan and Tokyo. And so uh, especially ahead of the Olympics. So one of the things that um, we've been working on for the last year or so is to try to find the right person to help us run the office there um, because it's yeah I guess it's in the position that China was pre-Olympics where you've got all these people coming in imminently but not quite enough tour guides not enough infrastructure really to support it so um, that's an exciting space and also from the bespoke side we uh, in the China side sorry we are we have just launched group tours so that means that rather than the private tours, which obviously the private customized tours take a huge amount of time, much longer than most people realize, uh, to put together to, um, you know, brief the guides and mm. the drivers and experts for are now doing group tours, which are scheduled weekly tours, our best, you know, the highlights, I guess, a highlights reel of our, our best tours on a weekly basis. And they're cheaper. So, you know, more people can join. It's a group tour. It's a shared experience, but it's a more, more affordable price point. So we're excited to launch that and reach more people again. That's really exciting. I kind of want to actually bring this back full circle in a sense and I know that you speak a lot about mental health and mental health awareness. And I wanted you to tell me a little bit more about why that is a topic that is so personal and important for you. Yeah. So I, when I, as I mentioned, when I first came to China, just a couple of months prior to that, I had uh, been on one of the trains that was bombed in, in London during the 2005 uh, terrorist attack. And it was just, a, it, yeah, it kind of goes without saying that it was a pretty traumatic experience. And so when I arrived here, I had pretty much left my support network behind and was just very much out on a limb and, and struggling. I mean, I had PTSD, so it was a difficult it was a difficult couple of years actually it all happened very quickly and it took me too long I think to go and see someone about it and so that's why I'm quite passionate about talking on that subject I think I've noticed that more and more uh, especially young women you know depression anxiety these things are like on the rise globally actually not just in the west in China for sure so it's something that I always want to talk about and be honest about and <laughs> help people realize that you know no, they're, they're not alone and that actually a lot of people struggle with these things and yeah I think I think a lot of what the company does is try to is, is, is speaks to that and I think it's it's come from that experience really we're just trying to empower people because when I first came here I did not have a lot of confidence and I really didn't feel very empowered <laughs> and so bespoke is a is also a bid to help people feel a little bit more in control and a bit more confident in a situation that they 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 don't know or that they're unfamiliar with and and a country like China can be really difficult if you don't speak the language and have never been before and so we're really just trying to make life easier for those people really when they come in whether they're here for whether they've just moved here um, because of a spouse like I had or whether they are here on a vacation it's good to have some help from a friendly face you know thanks for sharing that and when you give these talks do you often speak to audiences in China do you often speak to audiences who are your audiences and what sort of feedback and response have you gotten from them? Yeah, I mean, I've only talked about those things a couple of times in, in public and the response is always good because I think people realize that it's um, it's not an easy thing to talk about. Um, but in general, for me, it's more about just trying to 
trying to spot uh, people who might be struggling <laughs> and help them out. So it's it's more of a, I, I think it's more that I enjoy talking about it if I am given the chance, because I think the more people talk about it, the less of a stigma there is around it and the more, uh, yeah, the, the more people will get help and, and not wait as long to get help. I think that was the biggest thing that, that's the thing that I regret the most is that I really struggled by myself for a long time and there was a lot of pride there, sort of, oh, okay, I, you know, this is one that I, really can't figure out by myself because it's been a while and I'm still miserable. And so um, I think talking about it out in the open in any forum, regardless of whether it's on a a public stage or um, with fellow employees or friends, it's it's just an important thing to do. For sure. And it's so important to get that that message and that word out there. So I, I really thank you for sharing that part of yourself. And so I think that leads me to asking you about a piece of advice. Has there ever been a piece of advice that someone has given you that you subsequently have recently given to someone else? And if you wouldn't mind sharing it with listeners, I think we'd be very grateful. Gosh, lots. One thing I think from an entrepreneur point of view, I don't know if there are other people running businesses or thinking of running businesses, but one thing that's come up a lot for me, and I was very grateful in the early days to be there's a great community of entrepreneurs here in Beijing. And one of the books that was recommended to me in the really early days was something that shaped my whole business and my whole outlook. And I think it's been really useful because it was a book called The E-Myth, which uh, stands for The Entrepreneur Myth. And what it talked about was people who work in their business and people who work on their business. And one of the dangers when you start a small company is that you try and do everything yourself because the reason that's usually the reason you got into that in the first place, because you enjoy doing it and people asking you to do it anyway but the problem with that is that you can absolutely exhaust yourself and then you start to become ineffective and so this book really outlined the idea that no matter how small your business um, no matter how big you want to make it creating a sort of franchise prototype a, a business that has systems and operating systems and things that could be passed on to new staff and new team members is a really great way to to work from the very beginning so that you get yourself out of doing the day-to-day work doing the day-to-day operations so that you work can work on building the business and that was such a it was such a hard-hitting book it's very stark the way it puts its message across Mm. but it really worked because I think a lot of people who start small businesses can find them still still doing all the operations and still doing the bulk of the work years later and being kind of exhausted by it and I was so grateful that there were you know other people in the city who said look you have to read this book it's really important to read it early on in your business so that you don't kill yourself creating it (laughs) so that you enjoy it and you can grow it in other directions and do more of the creative work and yeah so that's that's it's the one book that I find myself recommending to all other people that come to me and ask ask about it and sort of say oh you seem to you know you you seem to be able to have your weekends and holidays and I say yeah because I'm not I'm not the one running the business on a day-to-day basis you know that's my amazing team but you have to make a conscious decision from from day one to build that because otherwise yeah you could tie yourself in knots, I think. Yeah, especially when you're so tied to something and it's so important to you to really consciously build out your business in a way that you're able to make sure that you're not too far deep into it. I think that's incredible advice. And it seems like you're very grateful that you were able to have that mindset shift when you did rather than 
yeah, too late in yeah, the game absolutely. when maybe the structure of the company or other factors prevent you from really being able to change that mindset. So I think that's an yeah. incredible piece of advice. I think that this has just been really quite a pleasure to speak with you, Sarah. I have very much enjoyed hearing your stories, but also a lot of the practical and tangible things that you shared about growing your business and really coming to Beijing, not knowing where the path would take you and having spent many years in China and grown a very successful business and really showing China to the outside world where it's sometimes difficult to get that opportunity. Um, It's really impressive what you're doing. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Juliana. No, it's been great speaking with you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today. Ta for Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Quo, editor and co-producer, and Jason McRonald for editing. Also make sure to check out the other great podcasts featured on the Seneca Network. I always do love hearing from listeners, so questions, comments, general musings, whatever, could be sent to ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.